This series is called Living Tents, it's our summer series. Um, we've been on it for quite a while. And over the past few weeks, we have just been, been journeying together and exploring some of the meaning and significance of the tabernacle and its elements. And it's been amazing to see how God speaks to us through these things because nothing in the Bible is there by accident. In fact, there's significant amounts of symbolism in there and ways in which God can speak uh, to us. At the start of the series, um, I'll say we could teach on this um, for months or years, and I have found uh, that problem when I've been looking at, at the theme that I'm looking at t today, which is the lampstand, or as Perona rightly wrongly said, the candlestick, um, because that's quite often what people call it, but there's no candles. Um, it probably looks like something that should have candles on it, but it doesn't. Um, it actually has oil lamps. And the symbolism is really, really deep. Um, but also, let's keep in mind what Al said a few weeks ago. So we we'll have that slide that says, the pattern of the tabernacle speaks to the person of Christ and the postures of the Christian life as we live in the presence of God. That's good alliteration, and it's good preaching, because everything starts with P. Um, as we know from um, preaching, that P is the holiest number that you can or letter you can have and start all your points with. That was a joke, by the way. Um, <laughs> just in case somebody's going to argue with me that it's not. Um, so with this in mind, let's look at the lampstand or the candlestick. Um, it's also called the menorah, and the menorah is the Hebrew word for lamp. There it is. Um, we're going to look at this in um, Exodus. And so if you do have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus 25 or look at it on the screen, Exodus 25 from verse 31. And so just going to read quickly. And so here's my honest piece. I, I, I love all this stuff. I want to talk about the symbolism of this stuff. I want to talk about what it means and what we can learn from it. But my desire today is to get to Jesus. Um, and that's where I want my destination to be. And so I'm going to go through all of this. And in all of this, it's going to tell us stuff about Jesus. But I'm just really, really desperate to get to Jesus this morning. So let's crack on and get through this a bit at the start. So here is what God said to Moses. Okay, make a lamp stand of pure gold, hammer out its base and shaft, and make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece of them. Six branches are to be extended from the side of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be uh, on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand, there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud should be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. The buds and branches shall be of one piece with the lampstand, hammered out of pure gold. Then make its seven lamps and set them on it so that they light the space in front of it. Its wick trimmers and trays are to be of pure gold. A talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. I guess a lot of work. Um, so take a look at a picture of it. Um, there we go. So that is what um, it 
possibly look like. The exact proportions um, are not known. What we do know is the amount of gold. It's about £30,000 worth of gold in our money, um, and it's pure gold. And that pure gold represents um, holiness and purity. So everything else that was made of gold in and around the tabernacle was overlaid with gold. This is the only thing that was made with pure gold. So that's why it had to be hammered out. You couldn't just create a shape or a box and then overlay that with gold. The hard work had to be done to create that piece. And so the construction um, uh, and the detail in these things, for us, if we want to reflect on that, is an opportunity for mindfulness and intentionality in action. It is an approach and a journey towards God. Every little detail matters. And this calls people to think more deeply about every step. You see, the tabernacle experience is very different from the way that we live today. We're so often focused on getting things done that the process of getting things done, we miss the benefits and we miss God sometimes in the process of what he's doing in our lives because God is in the details. God is in the process, and God is the destination. So we can miss him in the, in the detail, and we can miss him in the pro process, even though we're trying to find him as the destination. And who is the person that made this? Because this revelation was given to Moses. So Moses is the leader, God says, and he gives all that detail we've just read, and Moses is like... Right, okay, and you only find out like about six chapters long that God had somebody in mind to make this, and it wasn't Moses, but it's a really important person in the Bible, and his name is Bezalel. And so let me just read about him. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom with understanding, with knowledge, and all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. At that point, if I was Moses, I'd be like, Phew, I'm so glad that Bezalel is about because I was not going to make a good job with that. Um, and the simple fact is there's a, there's a level of beauty, there's a level of craftsmanship and construction of the tabernacle that actually in itself provides a revelation of God, but also provides the opportunity for creative people to be involved in the worship of God and the expression of God and the revelation of God and his nature. Um, and this is really, really important. Um, we were on holiday in, in Italy over the summer there, and one of the things that you do when you're sort of in Europe in, in big cities is you go and see fancy churches. And you go inside, well, even from the outside, there's like so much detail and so much craftsmanship. And very often these churches, when they were built hundreds of years ago, someone's entire career would have been involved in building that one church. It might have taken 40, 50 years to build the stonemasons would have built it from the outside, but then people would have spent and put in detail on the inside that just blows your mind. And you're looking at it and you're thinking, what a waste. Like, how much did that take and how much did that cost? And, you know, that's really expensive. Sorry, that's maybe just me, the way I think. Um, but none of it is a waste 
and none of it is an extravagance if it's given glory and honor to God. And in its creativity, it expresses who God is and who we are as created beings. And that people who come in and see that go, wow, isn't God amazing? And so I want to say that in our church, we need more Bezalels. We need more people of creativity. We need more people who recognize that the, the arts, the gifts, the talents that they have have been given to them by God to worship God, to make him known. But also that because they are made by God, for them to live out the fullness of um, their person, the expression of art and creativity, it's a wonderful thing that we should encourage. Um, and, and those things lead us to God. They, they're not the um, subjects of our worship, and that's what the ch- where the church got it wrong in the past. Um, but it's also where the Reformation got it wrong when we threw out everything that looked in any way nice so we could all focus on God again, is that we can actually rediscover the things that have beauty in them that point them towards God. And so let me go through um, some of the symbolism in the lampstand. So the golden lampstand is in the wilderness tabernacle, and it provides light for the holy place. And I think Karen said last week, there is no light in the holy place because there are no windows. And so the only light that is coming is coming from the lampstand. And it's gold that was given um, to the Israelites by the Egyptians when they left Egypt. And each of the flower-shaped cups has a measure of oil and a cloth wick in it. And Aaron and his sons were tasked at keeping this flame burning all the time, topping up the oil, replacing the wicks, keeping this lamp burning. And this lamp burning continually represents the eternal nature of God's light and his everlasting presence. It also signifies the perpetual worship and devotion of God's people, never ceasing in pursuit of him. And so this type of lampstand lamp was carried from the tabernacle to the temple and on into Jewish synagogues as well. This continual reminder of the eternal nature of God and his provision of light. And the branches and almond blossoms on this um, piece of furniture, these are representative of the almond tree was one of the first trees to blossom in the spring. And so it symbolizes God's quick fulfillment of his promises and his watchful nature. And so we know that that symbolism is correct because that's actually what it says in Jeremiah 1. I don't have the, the scripture on the screen, but it's Jeremiah 1, 11 and 12. And this tree also echoes back to Genesis. It demonstrates that um, in the same way that the tree of life in the Garden of Eden was a source of light and life, this tree connects the Israelites back to their intended purpose of being with God in Eden. Um, and, And so that symbolism actually is one of the symbols that carries right throughout Scripture. So Adam and Eve were cut off from the tree of life when they left the garden. But this tree reminds us that God has a plan. God has a purpose. And that he's going to restore everything to himself. And so I think Karen mentioned it last week about the number seven. So I'm not going to dwell on that too much. But there are obviously seven um, lamps on this. And this represents this idea of perfection and of completeness in the way that God works. And this suggests that God's light and revelation are fully sufficient, lacking nothing, and comprehensively cover all aspects of life. 
And light, and I want to spend most of my time talking about light as a symbol, is the most obvious symbolism of the lampstand. And the lamp's purpose is to shine brightly, to represent the presence of God, signifying his guidance, his wisdom, his revelation. In a broader sense, light symbolizes knowledge and truth and enlightenment, which are attributes of God and his teachings. And there's also this sense of divine illumination, that in that holy place, what God highlights and how, what God reveals is of ultimate importance. It reminds us that he is the source of wisdom, that he is the true light, the guiding light, that actually under his guidance, we will always be on the right path. So we can learn from the lights, the lampstand about God's guidance. We can learn that his presence is essential because without light, we would not be able to live. We learn from the lampstand burning all of the time about our, our sense of calling to perseverance and continual worship of God. Whilst the Israelites were sleeping, the lamp was still burning because whether you're awake or asleep, God is worthy to be praised and worshiped. But also while you're awake or while you're asleep, God is always at work. He is faithful. He would continue to be faithful. And so the theme of light um, takes us back, actually, as far as the very first verse of the Bible. So in Genesis 1, 1, that's on the screen, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, and there was the first day. So the earth is dark and formless. Another word that we get when we look at that is the sense of chaos. So into darkness and into chaos comes a light which has come from God that illuminates everything. And it's the start of everything that is creative, is this bringing of light. Without light, all the animals would die. All the plants would die. We would die. And this idea of light runs the whole way through Scripture. I'll mention a few references. You can check it out for yourself, and we know it. But sometimes we, we narrow our view. It's like light, good, darkness, bad. And, and we miss all the layers that God wants to speak to us about using these symbols. So if we go th forward in Scripture from the very start of the Bible to one of the Gospels, um, we start to read about this understanding that Jesus is the light of the world who's been at work from the very start of creation, but he has come as this light, as a symbol of God, to bring a revelation of the nature of God to humanity in a way that, as we talked about with our four Ps at the start, the tabernacle was starting to give us images and pictures of and little glimpses of. But Jesus comes and he actually lives out God on earth. He is the word made flesh. So we read this in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but they did not receive him, yet to all who did receive him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human's decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And like John goes into a lot of detail. The light, the true light has come into the world. He is the light of life. He is the light that allows people to be called children of God. Um, and so he's setting up his entire gospel to say, if you want to understand what God as light and life is, he has come into the world and he lives out what that means, the truth and reality of it. Because God has come and made his dwelling among us. And I included verse 14, and it doesn't mention light, because when we look at other translations, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's translated, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So this provides this connection directly with the light from the tabernacle and the person of Jesus being the tabernacle and walking amongst us. And so Jesus comes as the light of the world. What kind of light, what kind of light is he going to be? Because there are lots of types of lights. And so maybe at home, man, there's only one type of light. It's called the big light. It turns on when it's dark. You turn it off when you don't need it anymore. But it turns out there are lots of other lights. There are wee lamps. And you can have loads of them. So instead of having just like one simple light on the roof, you might have lots of little lamps everywhere. And candles. You can light candles everywhere too. You can have white lights and you can have cozy lights. We're not allowed white lights in our house. We have to have cozy lights, don't we? Some lights are harsh. Some of the lights are here are harsh. We're always in debate about what lights we're going to have in church because the ones on the ceiling are harsh and these ones that hang up here are cozy. But they're all different types of lights and they, have, they create for us a different experience. If you go somewhere and the lights are really bright and harsh all the time, it doesn't feel particularly nice. But the reason why we don't always have the big light on, men, is that sometimes people like a bit of a feeling of coziness in their living room in the evening, the light of a candle, because it makes them feel good. There's a different connection and an experience with the light. And so we have to ask ourselves, if Jesus is going to come into the world, is he the big light or is he a cozy light? Or is he something in between? And throughout scripture, we get a revelation of the type of light that Jesus is. And, and with light comes throughout scripture, we have just a few references very quickly. Light as knowledge and truth. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Light as spiritual awakening and revelation. 
For God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That, the, that actually we get to experience the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in the shining, light-giving person of Christ. And light is a symbol of righteousness. And so it says in Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. And so light, it symbolizes God's presence, his truth, his, his righteousness, his deliverance. And it's contrasted with darkness, which represents sin and ignorance and separation from God. And as believers, we're called to walk in the light and reflect the light. But what light do we reflect? It has to be the light of Jesus, because when Jesus steps into the world, and it's described by John as the light of the world that was once veiled, that was once hidden. So remember the tabernacle. No one else can see the lampstand except the priests who are in their ministry. No one even gets to see that as some kind of symbol or picture of God. It's hidden in the holy place, but it comes, becomes visible, not in a lampstand per se, but in the person of Jesus, the light of the world who brings illumination to who God is but also brings illumination to how God wants to relate to mankind. And this illumination is shown in, in Jesus as being the way, the truth, and the life. It demonstrates the holiness of God and exposes the gravity of sin. And so when Jesus announces himself as um, the one who has come to rescue everyone, and we know that from John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But then in John's gospel, John goes on to say in verse 19 of John chapter 3, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that they may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And so this sense that coming into the light, coming from darkness to light, is not just coming from sin to something else, but it's actually coming to the source of light, who is Jesus. And here's where I want to just really focus for a few minutes. And I'm sorry there's a lot of scripture, but this story in particular is so, so important for how we understand the light. And it's in John chapter 8. So you'll have seen them doing John chapter 1, John chapter 3, John chapter 8, because John seems to really like this whole idea of light. And this story comes after yet another clash that Jesus had with the Pharisees, with the religious people. And, and ironically, in some ways, the Pharisees saw themselves as the keepers of the flame. Their main focus was to follow God's laws and to follow God's ways so carefully that in doing that, they might gain God's favor and he might come down and rescue them. And the irony being that when he does that, they don't recognize him. And there's this fight because they're the keepers of the flame. They're the keepers of the truth. And he is the flame. He is the truth. And they don't see it. 
And so one of the clashes comes um, in, in John chapter 8, and it says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This was after a previous clash with the Pharisees. And at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Okay? And then, just after that story, because we tend to stop at verse 11, verse 12 says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So let me tell you what I think was, was happening. Jesus was there. He sat down to teach the people. And the teachers of the law and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group. And they said, look at this. We're bringing this into the light. What has happened in the darkness. And so let's bring it into the light and let's deal with it. Right? That's a big light kind of strategy there. Let's expose it completely. But it's not in it. It's a person. Jesus is sitting down when this happens. And, and the interesting thing is that, that he goes from a posture of sitting down. The woman is standing before him. The accusers are sit, sitting before him. And, and he goes lower. He gets right down. He gets right down to the ground. And he puts his hands on the ground. And he takes a low posture. And he looks at the woman. And he goes down to the ground in the dirt. And he puts his hands in the dirt. And that's exactly how she's feeling in that moment. She is feeling like dirt. And in another few moments, if he doesn't do something, she's going to be on the ground. And her blood is going to be on the ground and on the dirt. And there's going to be a pile of stones around her dead body. Because that's what the Pharisees think bringing something into the light looks like. Jesus thinks differently because he is the light of the world that's come to bring illumination to that woman, to bring the illumination of hope to her, to speak a better word, to bring a better truth, a more powerful truth. And he starts to write in the sand and you think, what is he writing? Some people think he was just doodling. Who knows? Some people think that, I mean, she was caught in adultery. So here's, here's one of the problems, by the way, with her being caught in adultery. 
How many people have been accused of adultery? It's an easy question. How many people does it take to commit adultery? At least. Um, yeah. Where is the other person? Where is the other person? It's a woman who ends up having to take the burden of everything. But Jesus starts to write in the, in the sand, and, and, and so loads of people love, like, what is it that he wrote? Um, and I think part of it was his posture of getting down into the dirt, and part of it was potentially um, that he started to write. Um, so she was accused of adultery, which is um, you know, one of the Ten Commandments. Maybe he started to write out the other nine. And maybe in writing out the other nine and everybody's seeing them, and everybody hearing his question, he who is without sin cast the first stone. It says that the older people went away first. They're the ones that probably had a longer list of sins that somebody could have written out. Uh, and they're the ones that realize, okay, this is not the right way to deal with sin, that actually the superior light of Jesus brings a, a new revelation, a new way of doing things. And so they go and they leave her. And he says, has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So Jesus still dealt with the sin. He still brought illumination. He still brought truth, but he brought it in a different way because he is the light. It comes from the fullness of who he is. And all these things, the symbolism from the Old Testament about what light brings, Jesus is the fullness of all of this. He is the word made flesh. And when the word is made flesh, it, it doesn't just deal with things in sterile. You've done this, you've done that. It is a person and the person gets down on his knees and writes in the dirt because he doesn't want to see this woman in the dirt. And that's exactly what she feels like in that moment. She feels like dirt, but he takes the thing that she is going to be lying in and he uses it to speak a better word. And it's powerful. And Jesus is powerful in the way that he embodies light. All the symbolism of the tabernacle points to moments like this where the word becomes flesh and you go, oh, that's what all those laws and all those regulations mean when they're lived out in the person of Jesus. And yet you have the Pharisees who are experts in the law can't demonstrate what the true light looks like. But we can and we should live out the symbolism because God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. What kind of lamp, what kind of light is it going to be? If we're going to, as, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, let our light shine out of darkness, that God has made his light shine in our hearts and has given us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ, then how we live in this world will demonstrate that love. Ultimately, God is restoring everything and every purpose to himself, which is why in heaven there is no sunlight. There is an eternal light that is there. Revelation 22, verse 3, if you just fire it on, on the screen very quickly, it says, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, and they will see his face and they will have his name on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. There will be no need. Uh, they will not need to light 
um, of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. God's work, God's desire is the restoration of all mankind to himself that includes this woman caught in adultery. And that's all well and good, isn't it? That's great. But and, and as we as Christians, we look at Jesus and go, isn't he wonderful? Of course, Jesus is going to get down and he's going to be with that woman caught in adultery and he's going to find a different way to, to reach out and to bring people to himself. The problem comes for us when Jesus takes all the, this light imagery about himself and he passes it to us and he says in, in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do you light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, you put it on its stand. So the light that was once hidden in the tabernacle, Jesus said, actually should be like a city on a hill. Everyone should get to see it. And the thing about a city on a hill is that very often in the Bible, that imagery is about refuge. It's about somewhere to go that's safe. The light that is safe that it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so literally the flame is passed by Jesus to us and we are called to be stewards of that flame and that fire. And either we can do it like the Pharisees or we can do it like Jesus. And it's hard and there should be something of the lampstand about us. People um, who shine. And we are this ongoing work like the lampstand of, of purity. We are pure gold, right? We are pure gold because we're sons and daughters of the living God. But you know how the pure gold was shaped? It was hammered. It's not pleasant at times when God is working in our lives. But he's trying to bring something beautiful out of something which is intrinsically of value but not necessarily intrinsically of beauty it is always beautiful to the person the craftsman who's making it into something else god is making us into something beautiful so that we can shine with his light to bring a revelation of his goodness to the world around us because we are the children of the light. First Thessalonians 5, verse 5. You are children of light, children of the day, not of the night or of the darkness. And even when, when we're, we're talking about the idea that connects with this whole tabernacle about us being a royal priesthood, it actually says a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a possession by God that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you what? Out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So we live in a world where there's darkness and confusion all around, and I am finishing now. Um, and we need to be people of illumination. We need to be the type of light that attracts people, a, a light that, that communicates safety, that we use our light when appropriate to expose. But you know the kind of things we need to ex expose? We need to expose injustice. We need to expose the work of the enemy. We need to expose darkness. We need to illuminate hope. We need to illuminate truth about who God is. We need to be safe people and a safe place for those that are lost in darkness. 
And the reason why we can do all of these things, the reason why we can be light like Jesus is because he's placed his Holy Spirit, the very presence of God in us, and he's calling us to be lights in Portadown. You see, we're moving into a building which is literally on a hill. But it's not the building that is the light. We can switch on the lights all we want. But according to Scripture, we... The people are a city on the hill, not the building. And so we need to ask ourselves, what kind of light are we going to be? Emmanuel Church ported down as a a church. Are we going to be the kind of light that people run to? The kind of light that people feel safe to come into? The kind of light that will um, show the depths of sin and destruction in people's lives in a way that they feel safe? in a way that hope starts to rise in their hearts, in a way that they believe that there's a a better future um, for them. And I I think we do that really, really well already. You know, Bill and Helen were here this morning, and they work in Connect Cafe, and I continually see light being shone into darkness in places like Connect Cafe. I see it as as people walk around our town praying during the week. I see it in so many ways. But the challenge for us, again, is, and like the scripture that Brona read earlier, are we refilling the oil so to make sure that we can shine brightly? Are we allowing the ultimate craftsman in the person of God to continue to shape us to be a lampstand that can truly shine with the light of Jesus? Um, I, I personally find that deeply, deeply challenging. And I want to, just to look more like Jesus every day, to try and do that. That's the only thing that matters, is how much can I look like Jesus? How much can I shine a light for him? How, can, how much can I bring a revelation of his goodness? It has to be a work in me so that it can be a work through me. And the challenge for of us all is there to be that lampstand. So what I'd love for us to do is I'd love for us to stand quickly, and I just want to pray for you, because um, time is up. Um, and I would encourage you to, if you feel like you want to respond, if you feel like God has spoken to you in any way this morning about this idea of being a lampstand, that come up and get prayer. But if you like prayer for anything else, if you like prayer for healing, if you like prayer for whatever circumstances are going on in your life, it is a normal, natural, good thing for us to stand and pray with each other. And that's what we want to do is provide that opportunity every week for you to receive prayer. But let's pray that God would bring a continual revelation and illumination of his goodness into our lives and that we would be people who shine with him. Jesus, I thank you that you do come to us and your light shines into our hearts and into our minds. And in the person of Jesus, that's never a place where we need to be afraid that we're going to be exposed and shamed, but rather it is a place of hope. And so, Jesus, I pray for that hope to rise up in people's hearts right now, for those that feel that there are dark corners and dark places in their hearts and minds, that the love of Jesus would eliminate truth and hope and breakthrough. For those that don't know Jesus at all, who might be here this morning, that they would know that they can come from darkness to light, that they can be adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. 
And for us, all of us, our desire is that we would be as people, a city on a hill, a light to the nations, that we would be a flame that burns brightly in the midst of darkness and chaos to give glory and honor to God and to see people come to faith. So Lord, stir our hearts again that we might shine brightly for you wherever you have placed us to see your kingdom come and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thank you very much. So um, please.